Thank you for being a listener of the We Are LA Tech podcast. To support and collaborate with the community, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener. You'll have ad-free episodes and join us on our monthly Zoom calls with other podcast listeners and get to know the community at wearelatech.love. Linked in the show notes. In the end, it's about the pioneering spirit. Do you have people who come see a problem and have a hands-on approach in solving that problem. That's my mantra. Listen to everyone, believe no one. I'm Alex Bloomberg, host of the podcast Startup, and you're listening to We Are LA Tech. My name is Esprit Devora, born and raised LA, and I created We Are LA Tech in 2012 to unify the community. Podcast launched in 2014, continuing to help people find the best talent, to connect with each other, to form awesome relationships. So proud of this show. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Brian Switchko of One Inc. We are a creative cohort and storytelling studio based in Los Angeles. I've been a listener of the We Are LA Tech podcast since the beginning. I've been a member of the We Are LA Tech community since the beginning. I am so happy and grateful to have known Esprit and watched the genesis of both. Um, but I've remained a listener because of the warmth that she shares with her listeners and her audience, but also the space that she makes uh, for for her, her guests and the stories that come from that. And then also to know that those stories aren't just stories, they aren't just content. Uh, they're a part of a community and that community is something that can be experienced in so many different ways. And the times that I've been able to meet other people and connect with them from the community have resulted in meaningful relationships and potent business partnerships. And you know, at so many situations where I can track back person to person, situation to situation over months and years years um, and and just point to Esprit as the catalyst for for what you know you look back and it's just it's just magic. Uh, I am so happy and grateful for Esprit and the We Are LA Tech community. I will continue listening, participating, and happily cheering for a very long time to come. Join thousands of people in LA Tech on our We Are LA Tech Facebook group where you can discover events, job opportunities, and even housing. Go to wearelatech.com slash community. We'll take you straight there. That's wearelatech.com slash community. Command Line Heroes is an original, highly produced, award-winning podcast about the people who transform technology from the command line up, presented by Red Hat. And this is not a technical show. This is a show anyone can enjoy, featuring experts from across the industry. Season four is airing now, so subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and stick around to the end of the show to hear a sneak preview of the brand new season. Hey again. I hope you're 2020 has been as you'd like it to be. I um, have been so grateful for all your positive messages. I really, really, like it drives me to receive them. It, it makes me just keep on going. So definitely, 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 if you have the space, energy, interest, definitely feel free to reach out to me at Esprit Devora on all social. It means so much to me to hear how the podcast has impacted your life and just everything. I can't believe it. Like the stories that you guys send me that I receive, I'm just like, I respond to all of them. They're just so cool that the, we're making this magic together, you know? Um, been podcasting a lot lately. Not that I haven't been podcasting before, but I'm talking about I've been producing other people's podcasts and I've been podcasting and then making podcast stuff and then being interviewed on podcasts and then asking to produce other people's podcasts. A lot of podcasting left and right. Um, makes me think about the structure of my company. One of our beautiful, beautiful listeners asked, you know, you don't talk about the specifics of your company that much. I think most of us don't really know like what it is exactly that you do. We just know that you're an entrepreneur and you work in media. And I thought that was funny. I think I purposely don't really talk about the specifics of my company because I don't want you to think self-limiting beliefs it's like I'm trying to protect you and just because like 
something works or doesn't work for what I'm doing doesn't necessarily mean it will work or not work for what you're doing. So I just try to keep it to the fundamental challenges and hero days that I have. Sorry for the wind. Who knew it was windy in Los Angeles, eh? But a bit about my company. It's broken up into two pieces, podcast production and um, event production. It's very difficult to manage the, the two. I work with a small team that I am so grateful to work with. I do want to keep my company small. I'd feel most proud of myself if we could continue to be self-sustaining and not rely on investors, very Sarah Blakely Spank style. Um, she never had any investors and she has brought her company to billions, which is crazy. Um, also Jason Freed, one of my favorite entrepreneurs. He was my first hero where I was like, you don't need to be a startup that raises money in order to be awesome. I was like, oh, because you know, usually we're pitched something else. So it's broken up into these two pieces and I, I guess I'm the creative, I'm the obviously on-air talent, I'm the event producer, I'm the person that shows up at the events, the hiring person, I, like, I do so many things, it's crazy. My background, maybe I'll tell you a little bit about that, is journalism. I um, studied journalism my whole life. I actually, in junior high school, created the school magazine, and then in high school was the school editor. Ended up going to a Cal Poly journalism program for a while. Um, I salute, you know, Montserrat Fontes, who was one of my high school journalism teachers. She's one of the most amazing writers, authors, everything in the world. Yeah, I've always had this love for media. My dad got me my first video camera in sixth grade. I was really, really lucky. He was super into technology and media, too. That's like pretty much where I got it from. And so um, I started recording. And I think looking back, like at the core, I'm a writer and a storyteller. I like to be careful with the word journalist because I know what it is to be a real journalist. I'd say maybe Anderson Cooper or someone like that, right? Like a real journalist is someone who like fact checks and, and they really go out and find the heart and grit of the story. They'll report on the full story. I like to report on culture and lifestyle and so it's a little more abstract where you don't really need fact checking because it's more about like how you show up to the world and how you take on life, you know? So I think it's more of story sharing than journalist, but um, I love it. And then as far as the events go, I don't know, there's something, it's not the event production itself. It's that I'm like in love with meaningful connection. And I feel that we miss that, especially in this digital culture where, you know, um, we, we are supposedly so connected, but yet we've never been further away. Like we're looking on our phones when there's someone right next to you where you would have said hello to before phones were a thing. There's like a truck going by. So I like to create experiences, eight to 15 people of um, tech professionals. Sometimes I do it for women in tech. Primarily I do it for Los Angeles tech professionals. And I take them skydiving, clay pigeon shooting, horseback riding. I've been doing that since 2015. Um, my company, We Are LA Tech, has existed since 2012, which is crazy. When I first launched it, I called it a concept because I was afraid to be an entrepreneur again. And it was called the concept for a very long time. I launched the We Are LA Tech podcast in uh, I started working on it in 2013, and then it aired in September 2014, and then Women in Tech podcast aired in 2015, started working on it before then, and um, it's been crazy now that podcasting is this huge thing. When I started, it wasn't this huge thing, but I had a gut feeling because I had one of the first YouTube channels, like first big YouTube channels, I was like, I think this is going to follow the same path as YouTube, and I, and I just... It, a lot goes into editing video because I, I owned a sports media company in my past. And so a lot goes into editing video and I didn't want to have that kind of, hi, <laughs> I want to say hi to the people. <laughs> um, I wanted to have, um, <laughs> you guys like that? See, say hi to people. It's important. So, um, uh, I had an action sports media company in the past. I've produced like hundreds of videos, hundreds of that I'm so proud of. Oh my God, 
I love the videos we produced, but I know what goes into creating great videos, like the color coding, the, the editing, the transitions. The, I mean, there's just so many variables. So I wanted something that I could do all on my own and do it well. And so I taught, I'm self-educated podcaster, taught myself how to edit audio. And um, now I have a beautiful team that, that works with me. But for a long time, I edited the episodes on my own. And I'm really glad I had that experience because I have an appreciation for what my team does. And yeah, so which is I'm kind of embarrassed right now because Adam's listening to me like to this recording to put it in the episode. And so it's kind of embarrassing to like talk about him as he's listening but you guys get the idea um so that's about my company I'm going through it I feel a lot of positive momentum ahead it hasn't been an easy journey I think my biggest competition has been myself um my own self-limiting beliefs my doubting myself or not learning how to manage my time as effectively as I could I just think the only person or slash entity, whatever you want to call it, that I ever have to worry about is how I get in my own way. So I'm excited to let myself thrive this year. I think this is going to be my year. I'm pretty excited. I hope it's going to be your year too. All right. Enjoy the next episode. Bye. to the We Are LA Tech podcast celebrating LA Tech startups and talent. It is so excited to be here back in Santa Monica and I cannot wait to bring to you our next guest. Hello. Hi, it's so good to be here. (laughs) Oh my God, thank you for making this happen last minute. That was crazy. Talk about making opportunity happen in LA, right? It was the most spontaneous podcast appointment I ever had. So, (laughs) And okay, wait, do you do podcasts often? Have you been on a ton of podcasts? I've been on a few. But I think uh, this one is definitely the biggest so far. So <laughs> thanks so much for making this happen such short notice. So uh, like for everyone, that was a 10 minute notice or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it takes two to tango. We made it happen together. So let's get into it. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, I'm Joe Bakti, uh, CEO and founder of Quantine. We are a company here based in Santa Monica. We are founded in UC Berkeley and have now an office in Berlin and Germany, one here and then a few labs. Um, we are working on the world's first multi-cancer detection test that uses blood to uh, identify cell-free DNA that stems from tumor cells. That's insane. And, so you're uh, like saving the world. Got it. <laughs> well, we are trying to definitely save lives. Uh, it's a very important mission we are on. And over the last five years, I think we have done a pretty good job in staying ahead in, in technology terms. And now this year will be super exciting. And Joe, why did you move your company from Germany, one to the U.S. and then to L.A. specifically? So I've been in the U.S. for quite some time, 2008. Uh, I always wanted to be here because it's better for entrepreneurship. I love Germany and, you know, engineering is great. But when it comes to doing really new things, the U.S. still is the best. We started at UC Berkeley in 2014 and 15. And then when it came very close to a launch of the product, which happens this year, which is big news, by the way. Exciting. Yeah, we scanned all the different regional markets in the U.S. And the way we have to launch this product, it's a very hardcore clinical product that requires lots of physicians. And there's a strategic decision to be made. Do you try to get reimbursement by Medicare, by the government first, or do you launch it into a self-payer market? The difference is eight years. Okay. So at least. And we decided, well, this is too important to wait eight years and, you know, dump a billion dollars into clinical trials before anyone sees the product. So let's launch it. And then we screened, you know, the U.S. markets and saw that L.A. is actually the best market to launch innovative healthcare tech. Ah, what was it about LA that made it the best market? We investigated a little bit what other products we have, but mostly like what networks we find of concierge physicians of people, you know, paying out of pocket for innovative medicine and how this correlates with income, because we don't want to just be for rich people. We want to be for people who are aware that they should spend some money on, on staying alive and healthy. Right. And not such a big surprise. LA is, leads the, the world in that. I know, we do lead the world in that. So, I mean, that was a beautiful environment. You have so many people who are super aware that, you know, their body and their mind is a valuable asset, which sounds for you probably too, completely trivial <laughs> because you're an LA gal, you know all about it. But if you go to New York and meet some investment bankers, they say, what are you talking about? Like body, mind, I don't get it. So, you know, this is a beautiful environment for us. You don't have to educate people on like, oh, your body is very important. Right. And you should do something about it. 
Right. Everyone knows it. And that makes this one of the best starting points. And where in LA did you choose? We chose Santa Monica, not the cheapest in terms of office real estate, but... It used to be. <laughs> <laughs> not anymore, thanks to you guys. <laughs> So, yeah, we chose Santa Monica for multiple reasons. We have a lab in Irvine. Uh, We're also starting another lab to have redundancy uh, on the East Coast. And, well, Santa Monica, it was about quality of life for our employees, right? If you go, I love LA, but downtown, maybe not so healthy long term. I'm still critical of the air. So Santa Monica is a nice combination of of things. Mm, Interesting. And how have you found that the LA tech community has supported you in your growth? What resources have you accessed here? I think LA tech has been very interesting so far, especially moving down from the Bay Area. Um, I think the biggest thing we see in LA tech is people are much more kind of innocent about Mm, it. In Silicon Valley, it has become this just machine. Everyone is just cynical. It's like, okay, how much of you? company do I get? I need 1%. You know, yeah. I just graduate. I'm 21. So I need 1% of your company. Yeah. <laughs> so it's extremely dubious what's happening up there. And in LA, you know, I think you find prices for talent is cheaper. You know, yeah. the churn rate is cheaper. You don't, not everyone steals your your talent all the time. Right. And we are focusing really our, our effort here in LA is, is marketing management. We always are looking for super entrepreneurial project managers and managers that can be also junior. They just need to be smart and hungry. And so that's definitely easier to find in L.A. And before we started um, recording, you talked about Scale LA. Tell us a little bit about Scale in LA and how you discovered them. Yeah, we have multiple little ecosystems we tapped into. So we have the biohackers. Uh, That's amazing. We just we are throwing a dinner this Saturday with them. Uh, and Scale LA has been very helpful and they just approached us and, you know, we are now a member, even though we have a nice office, but they are normally incubating smaller companies. Right. They're here at Sepulveda and they are a community and incubator for health related startups. And you told me like there's stuff all over the place, but <laughs> these are the guys we met and they were super nice and helpful. So, That's good. It's good to hear. And we had this discussion before yeah. the podcast yeah. about how you view the LA community going. And for me as a newcomer, yeah. kind of since one yeah. year here. I still feel it's very uh, invigorating and nice and fresh yeah. how it feels uh, coming good. coming from up north. That's exciting. So you still feel like a little bit, oh, we are the first ones here, even though I know we are not. But um, yeah. the community is more fresh. It yeah. says we still have all the potential ahead of us. Yeah. We have to, we can build so much more. And I think, you know, Teal and other people moving down here is, is, Peter a, Thiel, yeah. Yeah, is a sign of the times, I think. It, yeah, Ryan Hoover moved here from Product Hunt, which is crazy. Yeah, and we see more people... I can't tell you too. that's still confidential, but yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of important people are, you know, coming to L.A. This and is so- true. This is true. A true story. It, it, it's very curious what will happen. So let's get into your company. You're talking about that you launched soon. So what have you built up so far? How big is your team? Have you guys raised? Like, where is it right now? And where do you expect it will be by the end of the year? So we raised in the last five years about 13 million Series A and then convertible note before Series Seed. And that sounds like a decent amount for normal tech companies, but in biotech, it's tiny. And I think we took a very different route how we built this company. So in our space, you know, we are a deep biotech company, plus also more and more primary care and healthcare. You have to develop tech that is, you know, at first view, so difficult to develop that, you know, one of our competitors raised 1.6 billion in two early stage rounds. 1.6 billion in early stage. Yes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so that tells you a little bit what's going on. The world on. of startups. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Especially hard biotech. They pitch it as, as oh, we are yeah. revolutionizing everything in cancer. So they are a great example of, in my opinion, how you can become capital inefficient. Right. And I think we are on the opposite side of the scale. And I think we did a pretty good job in becoming very lean, how you develop very deep biotechnology from sequencing technologies to chemistry, to machine learning, software infrastructures. Um, we just got very small teams with very good people um, who work very closely together across chemistry, medicine, right. software, AI, this very different you know worlds right. you have to bring together. And our teams are two to three people each. And then you have a team of nine people but they are extremely productive. Very short turnaround times, short uh, iteration cycles. All the stuff that every normal tech startup totally knows. It's like, duh, of course, how else would you do it? In biotech, not so much. You think hire 100 scientists on chemistry, 100 on biology, 100 clinicians, and then never let them talk to each other and see where we get in two years. And we basically brought the spirit of, you know, disruptive tech innovation into biotech and had a very hands-on approach, right? We 
listen to experts, but we don't believe everything because we know we have to do new stuff. Healthy skepticism. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And what's so interesting to me, so interesting, maybe an overstatement, but when I was in Lithuania with the Women in Tech podcast, I interviewed a woman with a biohacking company. And when I hear the term biohacking, and this is why I bring it up, I felt like it wasn't me, like that was very scientific. And then when we got into the interview and I shared, you know, that I track my fitness goals and I track this and I track that reading. She's like, yeah, you do biohacking. I'm like, what do you mean I do bi biohacking? Such <laughs> a fancy scientific. I'm definitely not a biohacker. And she broke it down and it seems I do. Bio Can you break down what biohacking is? Because at least in her context, I did aspects of biohacking on my a daily basis that I was completely unaware of. When you talk about biohacking for cancer research and saving lives i'm like okay that's biohacking <laughs> you know like that's what i that's the picture in my head of like what a biohacker is so can you describe it a little bit so we love the biohacking community especially here in la we have amazing people here on the bigger spectrum of science and medicine um, i think biohacking is a very new discipline the idea is that everyone every citizen with a smart brain and the will to figure something out right. nowadays Have, has a whole new treasure trove of data you can right. generate. Yeah. The more systematic you look at that data and the more smart you are in, in getting something done to actually find something, right. um, the more you are a biohacker. That's right. how I see it. Yeah. So as a company, of course, we have to also, we, we walk the line between being smart hackers and doing things, you know, the way the FDA and other people need us to do it right. and the oncology community. There's still a significant disconnect if you're a biohacker, Uh, it's unlikely you're developing a drug right now that the FDA will approve. Yeah. So there's an enormous gap between. And so as a company, we have to sit more on the conventional side to make sure we really lead the world in also conventional compliance and all, you know, clinical compliance. Right. But the mindset of the biohackers, we truly admire because in the end, it's about the pioneering spirit. Like, do you have people who come see a problem and have a hands-on approach in solving that problem. Like, that's my mantra. Like, listen to everyone, listen to every expert, but don't believe anyone. Listen to everyone, believe no one. And then you get all the information, but you make up your strategy and try to solve the problem. How did you even get involved into this world? When did that start for you? It just, it's so smart. <laughs> it's so just out there and smart. And it seemed like, how big is your team, did you say? 25 right 20. now. It just seems just daunting to start this kind of company. Where do you begin? What is step number one? Stick around. We'll be right back after the break. The best business resource I have is my mentor's private Facebook group. I've never found a community that cares more about one another's success. It inspired me to create the same thing for podcasters. If you're a tech company or startup looking to grow your podcast audience, I created GetPodcastListeners.com, a private group specifically to discover how other podcasters have grown their audiences so we could do the same. Check out GetPodcastListeners.com. That's GetPodcastListeners.com. It just seems just daunting to start this kind of company. Where do you begin? What is step number one? I think that's an <laughs> amazing question. So first of all, our team size is a little hard to determine. We have 25 people we pay and are full time with the company, but we have a network of over 150 people like leading oncologists who you know, get sometimes reimbursed, but they work on clinical trials and everything surrounding us. So... Um, I think one of the big problems of our time is that all this great entrepreneurial talent tends to go into spaces where the notion is that when you start the company, you have kind of an understanding of all the things you need to do. So that's why people do cat videos and, you know, social media yeah. apps because it's kind of people get it. It's like, okay, yeah. I can code that. I need an, I need an iPhone app and I'm done. When it's something where you clearly can't do all of the things, like let's say building nuclear fusion right. or curing cancer, then people yeah. drop the ball. They're like, I have no idea how to do that. So how would I even start? Right. Our history is that we kind of got sucked into it step by step. My background is I'm, I'm an economist. I worked in M&A, then in quantitative finance, uh, in VC a little bit. I started a, a social media company. But my personal background is very medical. So right. I come from a medical family. Yeah. My mom was a bioscientist. My dad is a professor for you microbiology. You had no choice. My brother is an <laughs> engineer and a doctor. I had no choice. So I got sucked in 
or someone in my family asked just me. your mom being like, what is this social media stuff? <laughs> no. <laughs> they clearly had no respect for that stuff, that's for sure. Which did not stop me from doing it. But. So it's, it's funny that I always... They wanted me to become, of course, a doctor and right. a scientist. So when I was 19, when you make these decisions, I said, no way. I like the economy. These are very interesting questions. What is money? What what do people right. want? How do you make it all yeah. work? So I went there and then went in a very different direction. And then through the investment route, I came back and I just felt I had this weird natural uh, ability to understand biotech just faster than other stuff. Right. right? Fusion is a great example. I love yeah. nuclear fusion. I love the whole problem. When I read a fusion paper, you know, subatomic physics. Yeah. I just read it and think like, God, that's like very hard to understand that stuff. Right. And then I have friends who are, you know, nuclear physicists and they say, what well, I, I mean, it's so easy. So I feel a little dumb. When it's biology, it's the yeah. opposite. I always read like, I mean, duh, that's like so trivial. And then these guys who I know are smarter than me in right, physics, right. they don't get it. Right. So at some point I figure out maybe I'm just better in bio. Right. And so someone approached me to help him on kind of a quantitative problem in cancer. So yeah. they basically could isolate um, cells, circulating cells in the blood right. and didn't know what that cell is. And they asked me, how could we figure out if it's cancer or not? Right. Looking at the genome. And then I said, well, let me just look at it and figure it out. So we... Just your average Wednesday. Okay. So so I knew like that was a pure data problem. You have to... Yeah. You need big genomics data sets on a lot of cancer patients where you see the mutational profiles yeah. on the DNA yeah. and then have to do some machine learning and figure out, okay, what patterns do we have to look for in order to determine if a cell is mutated in a way that makes it more likely a cancer cell. So after we solved that problem, which wasn't too hard, it was like two months or something as a side gig... Um, I talked to a bunch of family friends who are in that field. Right. And they all said they've never heard of that. It's like, that seems like smart, but I can't tell you anything about it because I've never heard of that, like to yeah. do it this way. And they were important people at Stanford and Berkeley and some other people. And then I thought, wow, if they never heard of it, then probably no one knows that. And we just did it. So maybe we have something here that is actually worth pursuing because if we can tell you if a cell is a cancer cell or not, we could look at cell-free DNA in the blood and just detect cancer, right. which is kind of a big deal clinically. You could save a lot of people. And so I just kept running with it. And to your question, how we got the audacity to start the company, yeah, yeah. it's very interesting. We went like a very different route. It was more we got sucked into it. Right. I thought like, I mean, that was easy. And now everyone says that's right. never done before. Yeah. So let's just take the next step. Like, yeah. can we do a little clinical trial? And then I called up my old friend, Monica, Dr. Hagen, and she just happened to be very good in setting up clinical trials. Yeah. So she did as a sidekick, like I can set up a clinical trial in Geneva and some other places. Yeah. And so she got me the first, you know, 10 samples, and next 20 samples, which normally you cannot do. It's very difficult. Right. You need ethics commission approval and all kinds of people have to agree and it's official patient genomic data. So I had no clue about these things, but Monica just said, okay, I can do it. So we got these samples and detected, you know, nine out of 10, which is like ridiculous. Like as a first, like what is happening? Um, we got a little lucky, but that doesn't, we didn't know. So it's right. like, that's crazy. Yeah. And then, then I was able to raise some money, some seed stage well, money. you make it sound so easy. Wait, first of all, who was we in the beginning? It was just a very small team. It was me. It was uh, my friend Frank. And then it was Monica who helped us, but it was. Was it a company yet? Was it still kind of an exploration? When we started the trial, I already incorporated something. Okay. I mean, because I was, I knew venture stuff, so I knew we need a C Corp, otherwise you can't do okay. it. Okay. But I put in 100K, which was a lot of money for me back then because I was a little broke. Um, wait, wait, 100K is not broke. So, well, it's all perspective. Um, <laughs> where, if you don't mind me asking, like, where did you have that 100K? Was it from previous jobs or like, okay, so you saved up from yeah. previous jobs and then you decided to go all in Elon Musk style and take everything you had and put it into this company. I mean, I was a little, well, Elon Musk style only divided by whatever, 1,000 or something. <laughs> Still, you took um, everything he had, as far as I know, and he put it, I, maybe yeah. I'm remembering the story wrong, but No, anyway. he definitely did that. Yeah, I was, I mean, looking back from a risk mitigation perspective, I definitely was a little crazy because, yeah, I put in my money. I think we all are. <laughs> and then I was broke. Yeah. Um, but I just, it's really weird. Like the way I started the company was really not thinking too much about it. I just felt this is crazy. Yeah. 
there are 600,000 people in America alone dying every year of cancer. Yeah. If even 1% is true of what we see here, you can do the math, yeah, right? It's yeah, like yeah. it's like 6,000 people, you can say. Then I thought, well, who cares? Like, I can figure out if I go broken and fails and whatever, I figured out. Um, so I really took it and ran with it. And really yeah. step by step. At no point did I just think, oh, now I have this big company and we have to defeat cancer right. in the beginning. It was more like, okay, you know, what do I do next? I figured out the math. So now we need a machine. We need a wet lab technology to yeah. basically turn that into an assay, like a thing in the lab that can process samples and detect these mutations. Right. So that's how I ended up in Berkeley because I called them. They were the only ones who have that machine that we needed that has a single molecule accuracy. And they were super friendly and said, that's a cool pitch. So you can have our machine and you don't have to pay too much. And we give you a little lab. That was amazing, by the way. Oh, wow. And then we went, we were in Berkeley for two years. And then I called up Monica and she said, I can get you samples. Like we set up a study yeah, and we yeah, do yeah. it. And then we got the samples. So I didn't really think about it. I was like, okay, right. we have the machine. Can we get samples? Okay, now we got samples. Yeah. Okay, who does the, all the pipetting and doing the machine? I had to actually do it in the beginning. So I had yeah. to learn how to do all these things. And then the results were pretty good. And then we raised a million. And then it became more how serious. Did, okay, but I mean, everybody's just always so curious. So how did you just raise a million? You had that kind of background in your history of how to go out and raise money. Yes, so I definitely knew about these things, but also not. Where did you learn about these things? Exactly. With, so I didn't with have... With your depth of your social media past. <laughs> so, I mean, I worked as a, executive, as a strategy director and executive director with WPP and Omnicom agencies yeah. on doing some M&A, looking right. at growth opportunities. That yeah. was very corporate. And then I decided to get out because I thought I have to carry all the risk. My compensation profile was basically like an entrepreneur without the upside. Right. Like hit all these things. You give you a lot of money, but if not, not. Yeah. But no equity, of course, it's a giant yeah. thing. And so at some point I said, let's get out. I started my social media company, Kletcher. It was basically Tumblr. I hear the heartbreak when it's, you talk about it. I can't even go into it. I, I have to cry. I but we basically invented Tumblr. I have a sports social network that I feel that way about. Okay. I mean, basically we invented Tumblr without knowing that there's Tumblr. Yeah. And then we learned about it the hard way. You forgot to use Google. <laughs> Did Google not exist at the time? <laughs> yeah, it was Google. No, it was not. <laughs> I'm just um, kidding. <laughs> but it was the same idea as Tumblr, basically, and Tumblr just out-executed yeah. us, and they were just way better. I have to admit it. Yeah. Sad, but in, in this role, they say if we have a failed startup, then we're ahead of the game. We're smarter, or whatever. Exactly. My heart doesn't agree, but <laughs> <laughs> so I definitely uh, we didn't raise a lot of money for a clutch. It was like super tiny, like a hundred k in total or something. And but you started to understand the dynamics of how that world worked, plus your previous corporate experience. So a combination of all those things. But of course, I at that point, when I started Quanchine, I had seen a lot of startups because my next little venture was I2X, yeah. which I still love. It's still yeah. kind of doing stuff. But that's a quantitative venture capital investment framework to mitigate risk and build large portfolios that oh, help you. So too. you're really deep in that world. So I was very deep, but in a different way uh, yeah. because we talked to fun like large funds and LPs to right. create a fund around it and that went somewhere but got stuck a little bit and so I saw theoretically a, a lot of things right. like we started by Combinator and Techstars and all these ecosystems yeah. but I was actually not really in a position too much where I was the pitching entrepreneur and right. I didn't have a track record in raising a lot of money so yeah. it was new to me and building a company like Quanchine, that's one of the biggest learnings I had. Raising money is much, much easier if you have something that's a little crazy big. It's like if you build rockets or something, right. it's very easy to raise money. Right. Because you right. say, what do you do? We build colonies on Mars. Right. And then I was like, what? Are you kidding me? So what's the plan? And then yeah. people are very intrigued because you totally stick out or fusion. And so that's also my advice to entrepreneurs. If like you shouldn't be scared of really hard stuff yeah. and big stuff. Yeah. In my opinion, the bigger and harder to do something is, yeah, the harder it is to do it, right. but the easier it is to get a lot of support and money. So the bottom line is yeah. harder things are not harder. You compute the hardness of a startup by how hard is it objectively and how yeah. easy it is to get a lot of support. And then you know the net difficulty. Yeah. And that's why something like Tesla or SpaceX, of course, it's crazy and super hard. But in a way, it's also not because everyone loves you and everyone tries to help right. you. 
I mean, there's so much more I can ask you about all this, but I want to make sure to kind of like pivot back to Los Angeles. And um, I also thought it was an interesting thing for people that don't really know about this world. You say you've been building this company for five years, but you haven't launched yet. And I know that that's very normal when you're dealing with science. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how are you ready to launch now? And what does that mean? Yes, I actually by a far distance, the first ones to launch, like normally you have a 15 year path for these things and we have a five-year path or six-year path you mean a 15-year path before you can ever launch yes wow it's very similar if you do hard transformative diagnostics it's very similar to drugs you know if you develop yeah. a new drug it's a 15-year thing you have to do primate, like small molecule exploration you have to do primate studies then you know, phase one two three and it's crazy yeah in our case normally diagnostics are easier but when it comes to something as disruptive as multi-cancer detection in the blood, there are tons of hurdles to get, for example, FDA clearance right. or Medicare reimbursement. Because the evidence you need to show to Medicare, FDA is not even the biggest problem. It's more Medicare, like how do you get paid for it? They require you to provide extreme evidence, right. much more than normal, because yeah. you are detecting cancers where you don't have a gold standard in screening right now, which you would think is amazing. Because right. that's the biggest problem. But in terms of clinical trials and evidence, it's extremely hard to prove something if you have nothing to compare it with. So normally you compare it with colorectal cancer, you compare it against colonoscopies and yeah. show you're better. But in pancreatic cancer, you can't compare it. Right. And then what do you do? Yeah. And then you have to make up an entirely new reference system for the government. And yeah. they're saying, well, that's not easy. So we, I think, have a pretty clear technology lead in the field now, which I'm, we are very proud of given the capital Delta right, right. here. And we got to a point where we now have a test. We have a 10,000 patient trial ongoing with a lot of them already collected. And we are now in a position that we have a data set large enough to show that we have pretty good detection accuracy across multiple cancers. And we decided to launch this now into a private payer market because then you don't have yeah. a Medicare issue um, as a starting point. And five years is actually pretty fast considering that you have to develop the entire technology S stack. Sounds it after you've, I don't know much about that world, but after you've shared with us what you just, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, you we also had to develop enormous software infrastructures because, you know, for a single sample, we get 6 billion data points out. Um, So you get a massive amount of nucleic acid reads, uh, so base pair reads, and you have to triangulate then what's noise, what's not noise. And we are the only company, to our knowledge at least, that decided to build this whole pipeline from scratch. You know, normally you use existing stuff and try to Frankenstein together something. Right. And we vertically integrated the entire software pipeline, which just gives us a tremendous boost in accuracy and right. capabilities. Then there's machine learning on top. So once you do all of that, right. you get your very complex patterns of mutational profiles. And then you have to understand on a machine learning level, pattern recognition, which one is what cancer at what stage with what probability. That's all completely new. So... You can't just do neural nets or something. You need right. to be much more sophisticated in how you build these data systems. And so, yeah, all of that stuff is now coming together. And that's why I'm we are very like close to launch. Yes. It's time. When do you launch? Well, this year. We can't give you a concrete this, so this date. Year. No, that's good. And have you found that moving from you were in Europe and then you came to San Francisco and then now you're here? Have you found that LA has accelerated you forward even faster? Yeah, I think LA. So we picked LA because it is the perfect demand market, right. right? So here you have the best awareness in terms of demand. Our R&D unit is actually in Berlin in Germany. Okay. So that's where the machine learning, uh, the software and quantitative biology is. Yeah, of course, it's where everyone's efficient. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of a joke, but it's also not. I mean, yeah. we are extremely happy with, especially in quantitative biology, I think, uh, yeah, Berlin is our place. <laughs> I think I, LA. I happen to love Germany, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we are very happy how we in the end figured out how to do things. So yeah. we have the labs in the US. We have some excellent labs to just do the job and be high quality, controlled, scalable. In Germany for quantitative biology R&D, it's just a paradise. And in LA, I think the dynamism and the visionary nature of physicians, even oncologists in very large institutions we work right, right. with, City of Hope, USC, Cedar Sana, and so on. And the consumer, that's the magic of L.A. For us, L.A. is just the visionary place. It is. People just get it. If you say something that makes sense in the future, but yeah. maybe not now, L.A. people get it. Like, yeah. you know, someone on the East Coast in Europe would say, 
well, in theory, what you do is amazing, but in reality, there are 10 billion questions and problems. Right. Of course, your tech works, but how do you integrate yeah. it in clinical practice? Yeah. And there are all these procedures that it's incompatible with. And then we say, well, of course, that's why we have to change the procedures because we have a superior technology for cancer detection. All we need to do is adjust some clinical procedures. In LA, our oncology partners, they find this totally normal. It's like, sure, let's think about it and, yeah. you know, adjust the procedures to a new technological capability to save people. That's very hard to find in the world. Like most physicians don't think like that. They right. think like, what are you, we are not going to change our procedures. Totally. So in LA, the oncologists, the primary care physicians, and of course, the consumers or patients, they just love new stuff if it makes sense and if it can protect their lives. And you would think everyone is like that, but it's not true. Like LA is just a beautiful laboratory of the future, Aww. in my opinion. I love it. I love it. And a question I love to ask, two questions. One is, what can we do as a community to support you in moving forward? So I think the LA community, and we are investing a little bit in also throwing some dinners and events and meetups. We have a Let's Hack Cancer meetup. So we would just love anyone in LA who is in the community, who is a pioneer or a tech yeah. person or in healthcare or in wellness, preventative medicine, anything. We are super happy to get to know you, uh, to just do stuff, right? We can throw meetups, we can do dinners. We, we are super happy to build the community. And where should they connect with you? On my email. That's the best Can you way. share your email? Sure. jb yeah. at quantine.com. Can you spell it for everybody? Just because they're probably um, so pausing. They're pulling over in their car right now. <laughs> <laughs> J like Joe and then B like Bhakti at Q-U-A-N-T-G-E-N-E dot -E com. Perfect. Like quantitative and gene. Quantine. <laughs> awesome. And also remember when you have events, add them to the We Are LA Tech community calendar so everybody could see them there too. You go to wearelatech.com slash calendar or on the iPhone. We have a mobile app. You go, I think it's wearelatech.com slash app. You can get the, the app with everybody's events. This is super random and nothing to do with this interview specifically. However, I've been watching the masterclass with Sarah Blakely and she never raised money. And I think it's great. And I understand for, for a scientific company, you really don't have a choice. Like that's it just that's just you need to do that. But in general, raising money is in our industry is such a like a, a sign of success but it's really where the company begins it's not even an indicator of success and i find it very inspirational you know she's built a billion dollar company with all on her own without any formal background it's just so cool there's I just totally, so many paths is my point i mean that's totally yeah. i share your opinion totally here like the it's actually a zen question the money question i mean raising 13 million in our space equates basically not raising money in yeah. other spaces yeah 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 and no you have to i mean we, company, we have yeah. to but if you look at the other guys i mean they're just overcapitalized and we get a lot of pressure from our investors and all the time from all sides to raise more money and i have this philosophy that the number one the number two cause for yeah. startup death number one is founder problems yeah number two is premature scaling you raise uh -huh. too much money and you kill the company because capital can be super toxic it can yeah. be helpful but first you need to understand like what do you need to do to build great value yeah. something that totally. moves the needle then you determine how do you build that and what do you need and then you take in the capital you need to do it i think if you take 10 or 100x more capital yeah. it's a total illusion that you can raise 100 million when you need 10 million and right. put 90 into a savings account you will get tremendous pressure to deploy the capital and that means you hire the wrong people you mm -hmm. scale prematurely you have stupid teams that don't know what they're doing mm -hmm. you hire stupid management layers who are, make it even worse and the luxury that we had is that we always had enough capital to do exactly what we want to do, but never were forced to do something more. And that requires it's you to so actually push true. back and say, no, I don't want capital right yeah. now. Now we are getting into a series B because now we know exactly what we do with right. it. Now we solved a lot of problems and can build the next level. But it's the same thing, totally. right? So in, in commercialization, people say, oh, now you want to commercialize, raise 200 million. And I tell them like, this is just stupid. Where's your, like, why? Yeah. Like, what would we do with it's that? It's funny. I, I have a friend's company who they, they were very successful and then they ended up raising money. I mean, crazy successful uh, pop culture phenomenon type of company. This is a while ago. And then they raised money and their investors had a telecommunications background. So their investors forced them to get a really expensive office with this like really expensive telephone wiring. Super trippy, right? 
But it was just they had to because the investors pushed for that. And a lot of the stuff that they were forced to do because of this, I, I don't know, I'm afraid to even use the word strategic. It wasn't strategic, you know, it was just <laughs> raising money drove to the downfall of their company that yeah. was profitable before they raised. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. I think it's, it's, <laughs> it's literally, it's like, it's like biblical or something. It's like the devil is like, oh, here's a giant yeah. bunch of money. Don't you want it? And if you yeah. say yes, you, you die. Right. So I mean, I think it, it all it all was a bit. It was my sports company. I raised money. It was the best thing ever. I had the most amazing investors. I think it's important for us as entrepreneurs to always remember there are several pathways. There is not one clear path that applies to absolutely everyone. And I think we're kind of sold this bill of goods like our the clear path is, you know, do this and that and then raise money and da, 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 da. And, and there's just not a clear. And I, I love being more exposed to entrepreneurs like Sarah Blakely or where they're living a really uncommon path and making it work and work well and i'm not like jason freed and you know 37 base camp and 37 signals like just super cool thank you so much for hanging out with the we are LA tech podcast before you go a couple last things you talked about where people can connect with you is there an la tech talent or startup you've come across lately who has really impressed you well, I really like the biohackers. They are not a startup. It's more like a big group. Is um, there a group name, like a meetup group or something? What is the official? I think Biohackers LA. They're a pretty big group. But And is it on meetup? or It's is on it, meetup. Okay. Yeah. So just type in Biohackers LA. Cool. So I, I I'll think, join it. Yeah, yeah. I think they're amazing. Yeah. They have cool meetups and you, you meet very cool people. Awesome. So. And what is a tech tool that you love? Well, what we use in the office, um, well, Carter, very helpful. Carter, yeah. Talking about capitalism. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Totally. <laughs> Carter is, a, is just very helpful for us uh, to manage uh, shares, equity options. Uh, just, I mean, what's so helpful is if you don't have it, you look more like, uh, okay, I sent you a bunch of DocuSigns or something. Right. It just makes it much less real. Right. And I think once you look like a publicly traded company that issues shares to yeah. people, the shares become available. It's like a weird effect. Um, we use JustWorks. To Just manage, works. Yeah, to manage employees um, nice. or like benefits and salaries. Yeah. I think that's uh, very helpful. Bill.com saves our lives all the time because we, <laughs> Bill. Have to, we have to wire money to Germany. That's a giant mess. <laughs> um, so what else? Those Tools. are good. No, those are great. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you wanted to share before we wrap up? Well, I think, yeah, the takeaway is we would love to build more community in L.A., uh, we are very excited about everyone who's a pioneer and wants to do something big in their lives. We have a lot of needs for people who join us as intrapreneurs yeah. and, and make big things happen. And that's always my pitch to everyone who is an entrepreneur or was an entrepreneur and, you know, wants to do something really cool, but maybe more in a team and work on something very big. I think we have a culture where entrepreneurs and, and like pioneers really thrive. Right. And everyone who's not doesn't because yeah. we expect you know to be very self-sufficient we have tremendous opportunities all over the place from you know deep scientific research to launching a product to building a very complex new ecosystem in healthcare so we need minds who are truly entrepreneurial and not afraid and take it step by step and are great reality engineers amazing so if you like it just shoot me an email I love it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Joe, so much for hanging out with the We Are LA Tech podcast. If you want to connect further on social, go to We Are LA Tech on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Check out the We Are LA Tech Experience Club. If you want to go skydiving, clay pigeon shooting, wine and paint nights, we're always doing such cool activities every single week. I will talk to you guys, see you guys, all the things in the next episode. Bye. Bye, everyone. I'm Joe Bhakti, the founder of Quantine. We detect the 10 deadliest cancers at early stages in the blood using cell-free DNA and deep genomics and AI. Uh, launching a product this year. We are based in Santa Monica and you are listening to We Are LA Tech. I'd like to tell you about an all-new season of Command Line Heroes, a podcast presented by Red Hat. No one ever said hardware was easy. In Season 4, Command Line Heroes is telling seven special stories about people and teams who dared to change the rules of hardware and, in the process, changed how we all interact with technology. In the world of modern technology, we open our laptops, scroll endlessly on our smartphones, send tons of data to the cloud, and we don't think twice about it. But... Have you ever wondered how we got to now with our personal devices and what it took to get here? There was this blue box on a table and he said, well, here it is. I said, well, what is it? He said, it's a microcomputer. 
What it took were teams of engineers and programmers who had the vision and audacity to build new machines. These machines, they revolutionized our lives and blew the doors open to what was possible. How many people here had a computer versus how many people intended to get one? Only one or two people actually had them, and they would bring them to the club meeting. What are you going to do with it? And nobody had an answer. The key thing about time sharing was that the computer needed some way of being able to sort of stop its own clock. The、uh, creators of the floppy drives are not household names by any means. If it wasn't for that, PCs would have been adopted much more slowly. This January twenty eighth. We launched season four of Command Line Heroes, an original podcast from Red Hat. And this season, it's all about the hardware. We'll hear the stories behind some iconic machines and the people who dared to create them. I was the kid that always took things apart, took my older sister's toys apart. This is just another bag on the side of the eclipse, a skin job. Nope, this is a whole new machine. The process of passing the tapes around and encouraging and building upon each other's results is really what made the personal computer industry. We're exploring mini computers, mainframes, the first personal computers, floppies, early smartphones, and game consoles. And we're also going to hear how the community ethos that drove those early hardware heroes to build those machines still exists today in the open source hardware movement. The values of sharing are still there. I mean, it's in the entire open source community. The machine, in a way, was kind of a bit character.、It、was the people who were the real guts of what it was about. I'm Saranyat Barak. Join me for an incredible new season of the podcast, and keep on coding. So thank you, and、uh, eat your sandwiches. Season four is airing now. Subscribe to Command Line Heroes today, wherever you get your podcasts. The We Are LA Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Espri Devora, with help from Janice Geronimo, edited by Adam Carroll, show notes by Carl Marty, music from Jay Huffman Live, and Epidemic Sound. The We Are LA Tech podcast is a WeAreTech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the We Are LA Tech podcast. To support and collaborate with the community, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener at WeAreLATech.love, linked in the show notes.